Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey. Hi. Welcome back. Come on in. I feel like I need to start doing breathwork exercises before I dive into my episodes lately. Um, Just a lot of heaviness these days. So let's do this one together, okay? We're going to take a deep breath in through your nose. Breathe out your mouth, into your belly, out of your mouth. Do this as many times as you feel you need, because this is going to be a heavy one. This is going to be a little challenging. I've tried to record this episode two times already, and I had to stop and start over. And uh, yeah, so just be prepared that this is going to be a bit heavy I am going to share some things that I have never talked about publicly um, that are very difficult for me, and they will be likely difficult for you too. So yeah, I want you to be really prepared for that, Um, and I will try to give you a little bit of warning before I talk about some more the more difficult things but um yeah so just be prepared for that so um if you watch my instagram stories you know that i have been having a difficult time recording this and it is sunday and i'm going to do my best to release this episode today it's still early in the day so hopefully i can get it out pretty soon because i want people to have a chance to to listen in Um, If you're interested in this before it gets a little bit closer to Canada Day, which is on Thursday. And so the questions that have been coming up are, how do we talk to our kids about this? How do we get that dialogue going? Um, There's a big question nationally at this stage of, do we celebrate Canada Day? Should Canada Day be cancelled? I think there's a little bit of ambiguity there because... It doesn't necessarily, I think the calls to cancel Canada Day, I don't believe they are intended to be like long-term cancellation. I think people are saying at this particular moment, we are going through a period of national grief and uh, this experience that everyone is going through that is difficult for settlers to grasp and to take in. And it is very traumatizing, re-traumatizing for Indigenous folks who have to relive the trauma of something that they have been well aware of for a long time. And it is re-traumatizing also in the sense that, um, you know, their their experience is being validated alongside uh, settler Canadians who are reeling from what they view as a discovery of something that they never knew. So there's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of things going on. And because of the internet, um, everyone is kind of turning to their social medias and things to talk about this and to um, 
you know, have these dialogues and and it is difficult at times to censor and to protect yourself if that's what you need, um, which is also why I say, you know, like, take your time with this episode. Take lots of deep breaths if you need to. Don't listen in if you feel like you can't, um, you know, you don't have the capacity to take it in right now. It's all good. Um, at the end of the day, what I really need to say about this is that you need to do what works best for you. Um, again, this is a period of brief, uh, sorry, grief for a lot of people. And so everybody is going to process it a little differently. And there is no right or wrong way to do it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what we're going to kind of talk about. I'm going to offer a little bit of narrative around this from my own perspective and my own experience, because this is something that I've been kind of asked to do and something that I think is important context to. So <clears throat> I'm going to start by saying that um, this is actually, okay, so a lot of this is coming full circle for me. And so it's, it is interesting in that a couple of weeks ago, I recorded that episode about pedophilia and how there were some things coming full circle um, in regards to writing a paper and then now experiencing people talking about this on social media and, and already having been thinking and talking about it before. And then I found that podcast anyway. So it's a kind of a similar thing in this scenario because in, and I can remember the scene, I can remember where I was, what I was doing um, in 2011, I was taking summer courses in school. And so I was out in my backyard, the lilacs were blooming and I could smell them. They were rich, rich with scent and um, the grass was really long and lush and green and I could feel it in my toes and I was laying with my belly bare. I was wearing shorts and a bikini top, just basking in the sun while I was working on a paper for a course that I was taking. And so I was doing some research on that. And I honestly, weirdly enough, I can't remember what the paper was that I was writing, but I remember the article that I read that really constituted a shift for me. And so the reason why this is sort of full circle is because that article was dealing with the judicial system in Canada and how it is not equipped at all to properly deal with Indigenous and Aboriginal cases and law. And so there was a lot of details there that um, that was a, a huge eye-opening thing for me and was upsetting to me to see how this disadvantage played out and, and had some serious impacts on Indigenous communities and their ability to assert their rights in a court of law because courts are set up to prioritize and um, to, uh, and again, are not equipped to deal with Aboriginal law, which, by the way, I would like you to ask, I, I want to ask you, truly ask yourself, did you know that there is such a thing as Aboriginal law, that there is a whole other system of law that is applicable to Indigenous folks and communities, that they have a whole other way of dealing with things? And you may have some glancing familiarity with this because there have been cases not that long ago, uh, a specific case, and I can't remember her name, but there was a woman who was convicted of murder and sent to prison. And at one stage, she was brought, she was Indigenous, she was brought to her community, uh, to a healing center. 
And then there was a public outcry about doing that because she was a murderer and she was sent back to prison. And, and so this is sort of one of those moments where we saw a glimpse of what Indigenous law and uh, restorative justice for them looks like. Anyway, so just wanted to put that out there because I feel like it is not well known that there is a system of law that uh, Indigenous and Aboriginal communities uh, lean on. So um, I read that paper and I'm going to read some excerpts from it for you in a bit, but it came full circle for me because a friend of mine that I work with, he uh, had told me that he did an intro for a podcast. And so I was like, oh, what is it? I want, I want to listen to it. And so I listened to the intro, which was beautiful. And then I listened to the podcast itself. And it was about uh, the, the, it was for law students. It's And so actually, okay, so it's 28. It's called 28, the number 28. Um, and I found it on Apple Podcasts, but I'm pretty sure you can get it on other other platforms as well. And the title of that podcast is based on the the call to action number 28 and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I will read to you is uh, as follows. We call upon law schools in Canada to require all law students to take a course in Aboriginal people and the law, which includes the history and legacy of residential schools, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, otherwise known as UNDRIP, Treaties and Aboriginal Rights, Indigenous Law, and Aboriginal Crown Relations. This will require skills-based training in intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights, and anti-racism. And so this podcast is dedicated to um, discussing how that call to action is being addressed, what it means. Uh, this and and actually, so she the the host of the podcast even goes so far as to give a, a very good con context and background of what the TRC is, where it comes from, why it exists, why things are happening the way that they are. And so this is why I think you know a lot of people could benefit from listening to this podcast because it is directed towards law students and lawyers and judges and whatnot, people within the judicial system, but it's it's within reach and of value to a wide number of people. Probably most Canadians would benefit from understanding this stuff better because I think a lot of what's gone on now is that there are, um, you know, there's there are things happening, right? The TRC, for example, but not a lot of people really know what it is or what it means or, you know, any of that background contextual information, which makes it difficult to understand how things are happening, why they're happening, why these are important, you know, like it just, without that context, it's harder to grasp. So um, unless you are really involved in Indigenous uh, activism or professions where there's a lot of Indigenous contact, you really probably won't know much about this stuff. And that's basically what the root of the problem is, right? That people aren't educated about this. And so this is what um, Andy Palmer wrote this article that I'm referring to. Uh, she wrote in 2001, and it is called Evidence Not in a Form Familiar to Common Law Courts Assessing Oral Histories in Land Claims Testimony um, after a particular case. And so <laughs> she, she wrote this paper in 2001, and her one after she lays out her argument about how oral histories are not we're actually so the judicial system is not able at this point because of its structure or at least at that point and I'll argue still um, it is not able to properly weight 
um, oral histories, which are the records of indigenous communities, right? Um, their oral history is to our written records, but written records are an acceptable form of evidence in a court of law, whereas oral histories don't have a place that they fall neatly into. And so, um, and even the conceptualization of an oral history is flawed. So this is what she talks about in her paper. And when she concludes one of the, one of, this is what she sort of says um, about a result of the, uh, or sorry, anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to read it for you. If we are to expect oral histories of Aboriginal peoples to be given more consideration in Canadian courts, we must develop our educational system in such a way that it becomes unreasonable for a trial judge to be unaware of the workings of such orally based legal traditions. We must encourage public schools to make use of textbooks and other curricular materials that foster an understanding of alternative legal histories on their own terms. And then she, she lists a couple of resources that could be used um, by the education system to foster this type of education. Um, so it says, following that, she says, in order to give potential future members of the Canadian judiciary time to consider and develop their opinions on such matters, we must ensure that at the very least, everyone develops an early awareness of the controversies, controversies within our legal system. To foster an awareness, we must also rectify the recent excisions of the mention of Aboriginal peoples and their systems of governance and social organizations from some new editions of high school textbooks now in circulation in Canada. So what she's saying here is that the conversations and the education around this stuff needs to happen early and it needs to be often. So that if you were to become a judge, you would be very familiar with what Aboriginal law is, how it works, what it constitutes, all of those things, how Indigenous culture is represented. Those things, like she says, it would be unreasonable for a judge to say, well, I actually don't, I can't weigh this type of evidence because I'm not equipped to do so, which is what was happening in these cases, right? The judge was saying, well, um, you know, I have these, these expert witnesses. He gets to decide how, how, how credible they are. And they're meant to lead him through a process of understanding what these um, what these testimonies and what these types of evidence are and, and how to weigh them. And that is insufficient. Um, it ends up giving a, a, a profound advantage to the colonizer. And so the reason why I'm sharing a lot of this is to say that that was in 2011. When I read that paper and I started to understand how the systems in Canada that as they exist are so um, disadvantageous to Indigenous people and communities, um, it was a really upsetting thing to me. And again, you know, this was sort of my first eye-opening experience about the systemic racism and discrimination that exists in Canada, right? A lot of the time we, we mostly learn about um, racist individuals and how it's an individualized thing. But this was the first time where I was like, whoa, it really is a whole system of oppression. Everything, it is deeply rooted in everything. And so I started peeling away more layers in other areas. I started becoming interested in well, what other things have um, oppression built into them, which Andy Palmer points out in her paper that this exists within the education system because it is uh, up to 
a bunch of white folks in the Ministry of Education to decide what we learn and where we learn it from, what's relevant and what's not. And so obviously we don't choose to talk about the things that are um, difficult and dark in our in our history. And, and so the crux of this is that it's not just in the history of Canada, it is the present. And when we don't confront those things, when we don't deal with any of it, we're unaware of it, it becomes our future. And so this is something that is really important to me. And in 2011, that was the year. So this was late June. That was the year that I first decided that I was not going to celebrate Canada Day. I felt very shameful of my country, of our legacy, and of what our future looks like when so few people are examining this reality. And I was like, I can't participate in this. And so I haven't celebrated it. This is the, this and again, this is a full circle thing for me. I'm like, this is the 10 year quote anniversary of me not celebrating Canada Day. Um, and that doesn't mean that I haven't ever been involved in things that are technically celebrations of the day. Uh, you know, like I've let my kids go see fireworks and stuff, but I don't ever profess any excitement or, you know, like <laughs> I don't say happy Canada Day. I don't post anything on social media. I think I was looking on my Instagram in like 2017, the 150th, um, you know, anniversary or whatever. My commentary was like, you know, happy 150 years of colonialism, <laughs> you know, like there's this acknowledgement and there always has been since that time that, that this is not something that I'm going to celebrate. And so when my friends started asking me, you know, how do I talk to my kids about this? Because, um, yeah, a lot of people are foregoing celebrating Canada Day. Right there, and so this is. I mean, I think for 2021, not celebrating Canada Day is reasonable. It's reasonable to say right now things are really awful. We are experiencing this collective trauma and grief. It doesn't feel right to celebrate this country, and I get that, and I understand that people won't want to do that. I also understand that there are people who are going to say this is not connected to Canada Day. Uh, we're celebrating something entirely different for Canada Day, which is true because it's really just the celebration of the union of the provinces in Canada in 1867. So if you bring it down to like that level, you're like, well, it's not really a celebration of colonialism, because all of this was happening prior to Canada as a country existing. Canada as a country didn't exist until well after colonization had been underway. So there are arguments on both sides, and I get it. And I'm, I'm not here to tell you that you to do one thing or the other. Um, but I will say that I can understand that there's a lot of, of uh, you know, hurt especially for Indigenous folks, and there has been a lot of calls from Indigenous people to not celebrate it. And I will say, you know, when I've talked to my Indigenous friends in the past about not celebrating Canada Day, they're fairly indifferent about it. Uh, often I get the response of like, well, it's no big deal. It's not, it's not a priority for us to not celebrate this. This year, it does seem like there are a number of Indigenous people and communities who do feel like this is a priority to not celebrate it. So this is where I want to make this distinction that I don't necessarily think that people are saying cancel Canada Day forever for all the coming years. But on this particular year, given the timeliness of everything that is going on and the rawness of the emotions and the trauma and all of that, uh, I can understand and I can agree that, you know, celebrating Canada Day may not be the best thing uh, for for our country at this point. Um, but in terms of, 
you know, talking to our kids about this stuff. I think this is this is good. I think if you are considering not celebrating Canada Day and you have kids and you want to know what to tell them, I think grabbing some books would be helpful. I think uh, even doing some Googling about it, just just go into Google and see like what the narrative is and um, what's going on and be honest with your kids. You know, so the one book that I recommend and I've recommended forever is called When We Were Alone. Actually, my mother-in-law got us this book and it's a really great children's book. It describes the conditions of residential schools and uh, the way that it affected Indigenous folks um, from a way that, from a, a lens and in a way that's not going to traumatize your kids. But it offers the opportunity to continue that conversation. And this is usually why books are great, is because they start a narrative and it's up to you to carry that narrative forward from there. And you can decide what your children can and cannot handle. And honestly, it depends on the kid. It may not even be an age thing because some kids are really mature for their age and they can grasp some of these things. Emmeline is starting to become more aware of residential schools and she knows that children went there and they were taken from their families. And, you know, she has a bit of, of context and background for this. Um, Bobby is always there when we're talking about it. So he'll just sort of passively get that background too until we can have some explicit conversations about it. Um, but yeah, I think basically you, you know, you can tell your kids like we're not going to celebrate Canada Day this year because there have been some revelations, maybe not to use the word revelations, but we've found some things out about our country and our history that we're really not proud of. And so we're not feeling a sense of pride in our country at this moment. So we're going to take the opportunity to mourn and to honor the lives of the the people that we've lost, the people whose lives we have, um, you know, that have been forgotten. Sorry, interruption there. <laughs> a friend of mine came to drop off some material for Emmeline for sewing. Anyway, um, so you can tell your kids that if that is what you want to do. If you feel like it is uh, inappropriate to celebrate this holiday this year, that's fine. Um, and so the other thing that I was going to say, and this came up when my friend dropped by because she has two sons as well. Um, and sorry, two, she has two sons, not like I have two sons, but two kids. Anyway, wow. Um, the other thing that I think is appropriate if this works for you is to to still celebrate the day to still acknowledge that it's Canada Day and this is you know a happy time but at this particular moment there is um, some some painfulness there and to sort of just incorporate that conversation into the day and so this is something that I kind of talked with my friends about who are indigenous um, who typically, you know, again, they're either indifferent about celebrating or they participate in Canada Day celebrations uh, from the Indigenous perspective, which is fairly common. Um, <clears throat> this year may not be the, the year. It might be whatever. Thinking um, of my friend, she said she promised her son that they would do fireworks this year. So she's going to do fireworks and she recognizes that she's also not really into celebrating Canada Day, but, you know, this is something that's a good excuse to have fireworks. So, you know, like that's fine. I think that's fine. And so people can do those things. And then again, still just incorporate 
this dialogue and this other side of the conversation where, yeah, we're proud of our country or we're, you know, we're happy to be Canadians, but we have to also recognize this dark side of our history and, again, our present. Um, so it can be a blend. And I think, so this is what I was saying, my friends and I were talking about, like, that's likely how we'll approach the holiday going forward. Because, you know, one of the things that, that I said on my Instagram stories was that um, it's because we're starting to address the truth and reconciliation cause, calls to action that this stuff is coming out. And uh, we have 94 calls to action and there have been maybe a handful of them have been addressed so far. Arguably, this one is going to be the most painful for people and the most uh, or evoke the most visceral reaction because it's children and children tend to be the thing that gets people emotional. Um, so it's maybe not going to have the same impact as we continue to address more of these, but they are going to continue to be addressed and they are going to be publicized and in the media and these dialogues are going to be pushed forward over time. So it's sort of like a buckle up and get prepared to be continuously uncomfortable for a while because this is what's going to happen. This is the reality of the situation is that these these calls to action are going to continue to be addressed. It's going to continue to unearth painfulness and trauma and violence. Um, and so we have to be able to be able to deal with that and confront that and move through it. So, yeah, again, this year, depending on how you feel, depending on what it is that you're experiencing, you may or may not want to celebrate the holiday. But as you, the years go on, it's very unlikely that Canada Day will ever be fully cancelled. So, in my mind, it's probably best to, to just transform the day, to, to start to incorporate those conversations as part of the day. And I will add that we should be having these conversations throughout the year and there should be dialogue happening all the time so that you're not just looking at these particular days where you're going to suddenly unearth trauma, right? Like it could be, and it should be a part of your ongoing dialogue with your family. And so maybe this is where you start, right? You see this happening now, you suddenly have been awoken to it. This is your moment where you're like, ah, I get it. And you start looking into more things and learning more and talking more about it and having these dialogues in your home. And I think that's really what we need to focus on is the ongoing dialogue, is the ongoing conversation of this is part of our country's history. And so there are moments in time when this is appropriate to do. And so actually I was going to turn, I was going to let you know that, um, so we normally have uh, the Orange Shirt Day, in, on September the 30th every year for the past few years, we've been doing this in order to honor the children. Um, and so I learned recently that the government has uh, recognized this as a now a national holiday called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And so that's another opportunity to engage in this dialogue. And this is an opportunity to take the time to really deepen understanding of, of the TRC and of what's going on in these residential schools and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it should be, 
an ongoing conversation. And this is part of what Andy Palmer talks about in her paper, right? Like we need to be having formal education about this. It can't be left to parents to do this on their own because not a lot of Canadians are really familiar enough with this stuff. And so you can start the dialogue and you can continue to learn more and learn alongside with your children. That's great. Um, But Again, you know, this does need to be formally included in our education system so that people are are getting exposure to it through school. And then it's also more uniform that way so that everybody sort of gets the same introduction to it. So at the very least, kids are on the same page. It's more it's relevant to what is happening now. At least we hope it is. Um, So this this other podcast, 28, was also interesting because she was talking about how um, she uh, she had said that she's from the she go, she was working at the University of Toronto and she was talking about how they are in the process of creating a, a mandatory course for all law students to take that is an Aboriginal uh, law studies course and so this is in line with the call to action twenty eight which is to educate specifically law students on. Um, the the TRC and on Aboriginal law and and all of those other things that were named in that call to action. And so that was of interest to me because that is also what um, Andy Palmer calls for in her paper in 2001, where she talks about uh, students having a, a, a deep under, a deeper understanding and a background um, about these issues so that they, when they come to uh, courts of law, that they're equipped and competent in their ability to address these kinds of concerns and to to take into account Aboriginal law. Um, but so one thing that I really, I really want to drive home here is that the traumas that people experience through the colonization uh, and oppression through the Canadian government is ongoing. It's not just something that existed in the past. It's not just part of our history. Like I said, it is part of our our present and it will be part of our future, especially if we're not able to confront any of this stuff. And so this is part of why the TRC is so important. And I have to say, I opened this episode saying that, you know, there was going to be some difficulty and heaviness here. Um, And I... I've decided now as I as I get sort of this far into it that I, I don't want to share <clears throat> some of the painfulness that that I've seen or that I've experienced. Um, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it's my place to say something. But what I can say and what I will say is that things that uh, shock the average Canadian, are things that I have seen, things that I have witnessed with my own two eyes. I've seen how people are treated. You know, like um, if people people like Joyce Eshquan, who happened to be filming at the time that she was being abused in hospital, and people are, again, shocked and dismayed to learn this, and they think, oh, that's so horrible that that happened that one time. And I'm sitting here like, oh, man, not that I've seen a friend necessarily die in hospital, but I've seen how people are treated in hospital when they're indigenous, and it is not good. So the thing is, you know, you've got to understand that this is a, a real problem. They're not isolated events. These are things that happen all the time. And people are 
um, experiencing these things all the time. And so this is why, you know, like when I read that paper and as I've done my research and everything else, like, and when I say done my research, I mean literally gone and like lived with communities and stuff and worked with indigenous folks. Um, It's become more and more evident just how oppressive this country really is to indigenous people and how um, little ability they have to get the boots off of their neck, right? So we talk about how this, this, there's this history of the darkness and stuff that's going on, but that darkness is ongoing. And I think that's something that people have a really difficult time reconciling because it's hard to believe that it's happening. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to believe that people are being abused in this way, that women are being sterilized, that children are being forcibly removed from their homes for no good reason, that, um, you know, people are not able to access education when they want to, or they're, you know, they're their lands are being stripped away. They're having higher rates of cancer because they're being exposed to pollutants that they never asked to be there. This ongoing nature of colonization. And so, the yeah, so like I said, I, I had kind of thought that maybe I would share a little bit about stuff that, that I've experienced, but it just doesn't feel right to do that. Um Maybe at some point I'll bring someone on who I've worked with and they can share their story if they want to. But it's not my place to share these stories. It really isn't. Um, and and I, I go back and forth about this because I think, you know, like I said, they, these aren't my stories. It's not my place to share them. At the same time, I think that the, they need to be told. I think we need to start telling these stories more. And so I'm trying to find an appropriate and respectful way to do that um, because it's it's painful and it's difficult and but the thing is you know okay so I don't I, I hate that we end up leaning on this narrative that things are difficult uh, I really dislike that because the thing that I've learned most over the years is that there is a lot of joy here too there's a lot of compassion and happiness and joy and love and all of that, right? And we often are now only focusing on the trauma and the pain because that's what's at the forefront. Um, And so we have to be mindful that there's a lot of good. Um, I'm not saying, unequivocally, I'm not saying that there is good from coming from residential schools or any of that. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is that within communities, within individuals, there's a lot of joy and happiness and there's a lot of good. And we have to we have to be able to understand and appreciate that, too. It can't just be about always focusing on the, the terrible things that happen or have happened. Um, but at the same time, we do need to be able to recognize that those things are ongoing, that we do have a lot to answer to, and that um, it's 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 not something that we we just sort of can get over. There's a lot of trauma that needs to be healed. And um, so similar to how Malcolm X uh, for the black community sort of described that he had this analogy that he said something along the lines of, if you stab me in the back with a nine inch knife, um, 
if you pull that knife out three inches, that doesn't that's the knife the the knife is still in in my in my back. If you and that's not progress. If you take the knife out of my back, that's not progress. When that wound has healed over, that is progress. And so it's a similar kind of thing here where, you know, the symbolism of canceling Canada Day is one thing, but what meaningful action is there to try to confront the history and the current reality, right? To what end is canceling Canada Day useful? And so, like I said, I don't celebrate Canada Day. I have my reasons for that, and I have maintained those reasons. But again, I have a fairly unique experience as a as a settler in my exposure to um, the the ills of Canadian society and, and government. So not everybody has that exposure. Not everybody's going to agree with it. And, and lots of people are really proud of this country and like, that's fine. But so the point being that like, to what end, what, what, what does it benefit anybody to just cancel Canada Day, to stop celebrating it altogether? I don't think it does benefit anybody necessarily. I think it's, it's an empty type of symbolism. Not in this moment, sorry. I should say in this moment, I find it reasonable and acceptable to not celebrate the day because there is a lot of, of, of pain and grief happening right now. But my point is, long term, it doesn't do anybody any good to not have Canada Day. And so it seems to me um, a better <laughs> move to say, okay, well, we're going to celebrate Canada Day, but we're going to start incorporating more of these conversations and acknowledging all of what Canada encompasses historically and presently, right? You can't just look at the good stuff. You have to be able to confront and accept and acknowledge and be accountable to the bad stuff too um, and the hard stuff. So that's how I see things going forward. That's how I view things in the future, that we will be able to have a more nuanced and um, positively complicated experience because that's how we make this country a better place. That's how we get to a better place, not by ignoring things and pushing them to the side permanently, um, but by embracing this new information, well, <laughs> new for many Canadians. And again, this is, there's no judgment here if you didn't know, because you were purposely not told right? This is on purpose that you were not educated about this. So I don't think you need to feel guilty or feel badly about not knowing. Um, most Canadians don't have a good working understanding of, of any of this stuff. And that is on purpose. So um, yeah, so I think what we have to really also consider is what meaningful change will come of this. What meaningful action will come of this? Probably nothing meaningful will come out of canceling Canada Day. Aside from, again, this year having a period of mourning and having a, 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 an ability to grieve and process the, the, uh, this particular trauma. But as time goes on, we're going to continue to have more of these things come up and we're going to have to start being able to process it and, and incorporate it into part of the fabric of this country and the fabric of understanding of this country. And in my view, this is important because this is essentially what accountability looks like, right? This is what accountability is, is taking in the new information, incorporating it into the worldview, and taking action to do better as you go forward. 
The other thing that I want to add here is that while I'm talking about taking action and doing something about the things that are going on, the, the things that are ongoing, um, I want to be clear and say that you know we're not all responsible to deal with everything. We can't possibly confront and deal with everything, but you can do something. So actions that you can take are to uh, start looking at your school curriculum that your children are participating in and figure out if they're representing these issues within the curriculum. Are they introducing it at a young age? What does the content look like? All of that kind of stuff so that you can um, be an advocate for that kind of education for your own children and for future children um, as well. <clears throat> you can start looking into what the child care, what the child welfare system looks like and how it's operating and um, trying to understand it from that perspective. You can look into what bills are up um, in Parliament for voting and what the implications of those bills are. There are lots of things that you can do to be taking meaningful action to try to um you know, advocate and represent these these voices and these issues, which, uh, again, you don't have to deal with everything, but um, maybe trying to take up some things in your life so that you can try to be part of the meaningful change that we are trying to accomplish. But, um, yeah. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I think, I think I've, I've said what I really need to say. I think I've covered everything. Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> sorry, this is very difficult to do. So hopefully this all makes sense. Hopefully you got something out of this. Um, and, uh, hopefully we can, we can start to enact some positive change. That's the goal, right? Is to, to be part of the change. And a big part of the change is just awareness. So if now and in the future you include more conversation about the darker history of Canada and Canadian uh, governance and systems and structures of oppression and, and racism, then I think that's positive. I think that's a positive outcome for all of this. Um, and again, you do what works for you. Everyone is going to do it, deal with this differently. Um, you, uh, yeah, you have to do what works for you. And you can incorporate other people's perspectives in that as well. But yeah, ultimately you have to stay true to what, what is most meaningful to you. So yeah, hopefully this means something. <laughs> hopefully this is helpful. Um, and if you want more resources or you want um, to deepen your understanding in some way and you, and you want to know what to read or listen to or any of that stuff, I have plenty of those to offer. So you can always reach out to me. Um, we can talk about things and I can always recommend things to, to look into. And um, yeah. Oh, the other thing, one thing I did want to say is that some people are suggesting to wear orange on Canada Day this year, and I think that's actually a really fantastic idea because that is a type of symbolism that can show solidarity to communities on that day. Um, I actually don't know if I have an orange shirt right now, so I'm going to try to track one down before Thursday. But, um, yeah, I think that that's something that I will plan to do is to wear orange on that day um, in order to, to stand in solidarity with, with the communities and recognize the, the children 
that we are now in the process of uncovering. So thank you for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please reach out and let me know. And um, I hope you have a, a nice weekend and a good week ahead. And whatever you decide to do, know that that's okay. And you can, you can do what works for you. Okay, have a good one. I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.